Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 17th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The ongoing feud and uh, the brutal murder of Keen Mulready Woods has undoubtedly shocked everybody across uh, this country. Yesterday, the Taoiseach said that he stands right behind uh, the people of uh, Drogheda and we'll ask Leo Vratker what he meant by that when uh, the Taoiseach joins us later on in the programme today. But let's take stock of uh, the political situation overall because whilst we may be consumed uh, about criminality in this part of uh, the country, it's just one of uh, the issues on the Taoiseach's desk and indeed on the political agenda. Three weeks tomorrow, we'll be voting in a general election. And on the third full day of campaigning, we'll uh, take a look at what the parties are saying with Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and a political columnist with the Beath Chronicle. Good morning to you, Gavin, and thanks for joining us. Uh, let's start with crime, though, if we can, because uh, the Taoiseach and, indeed, the Minister for Justice will be in Drogheda today and undoubtedly crime will dominate uh, the proceedings there. Yeah, and, and funnily enough, actually, things would have it. Yesterday, a couple of the smaller parties ha- had proposed to launch some of their proposals on crime and to deal with some of the issues that the north side of Dublin has in particular, although obviously, as has been demonstrated very viciously in your part of the world in the last couple of months and indeed a couple of years, uh, you know, major organised crime and, and depraved acts of criminal uh, action are not limited to the north inner city at all. Um, I think today, what you have in the last couple of days is a perfect illustration of how being in government during a general election campaign can really be a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because everything you do, anything that you say carries that certain little bit of extra weight because you are already in power and it might come across to people as having a little bit more significance behind us that it cannot be portrayed quite as much as an empty promise. But equally, when things go off the rails and things happen on your watch that you may not have had a direct involvement in, but nonetheless they happened in your tenure, then they end up casting a shadow over the campaign. We already saw it on the first full day of campaigning when we had that dreadful incident regarding the man who was living in the tent beside the Grand Canal on the south side of Dublin's inner city. And then obviously in the last 24 hours or so, we've been dealing with the fallout of the murder of Kimo Reedy Woods and everything that comes with that. So again, it's another illustration of, irrespective of whether you think the present government is involved with that or has any of that on its own watch, the very fact that 
these sorts of depraved acts are happening while Leo Varadkar is Taoiseach, while Charlie Flanagan is Justice Minister, uh, are the sorts of things that might shape campaigns. And it is interesting that I know that after Leo Varadkar is on with yourself later on, that, that he and Charlie Flanagan will be visiting Drogheda Garda Station. Strictly speaking, that is not a party political act. We were explicitly informed last night that, that is an act of government, not an act of Fine Gael. But many people will sort of struggle to see that distinction. And, and nonetheless, it's one of those things that I'm sure they will be very, very regretful of that has happened in the middle of a general election campaign. Yeah, and would you expect any announcements in terms of extra resources or establishing some sort of a task force in response to the outpouring of grief and shock from people locally? Yeah, a task force may be the sort of thing that they might float this morning, but I suppose part of the difficulty that they have when going this morning and when people are looking for answers is that Leo Varadkar had, in the last 24 or 36 hours, already said that the Gardaí and Drogheda had all the resources that they needed to or that they would have all the resources that they might like to get to this, that anything they asked for, they would get. So it's very difficult, having said that, to then go to the scene and go and visit Drogheda Garda Station and then say you can have anything you want and portray that as being news. So strictly speaking, I suppose if anyone is hoping for some great big gesture from the Taoiseach or the Minister for Justice this morning, they might, they might come away feeling a little bit unhappy. But that is only because Leo Varadkar has already said that they can have anything they want to try and get to the bottom of this. But of course, whether the Garda nationwide or whether the, the structure of courts or whether the criminal laws that are already there are actually enough to tackle this sort of issue head on is, is something which no doubt we'll probably find ourselves debating for the next couple of days and weeks. All right, we'll hear much more uh, about uh, the ongoing feud uh, and indeed the investigation into uh, the murder of Keane Mulready Woods and uh, the political reaction from the Taoiseach later on in uh, the programme today. But let's talk uh, about some other issues because uh, the Taoiseach uh, has made a uh, uh, particularly bad gaffe in relation uh, to that homeless man uh, who was lifted in his tent by uh, industrial machinery, uh, calling on uh, the Fianna Fáil candidate and uh, the mayor of Dublin to make a statement uh, in relation to it. Uh, Has he learned from that, do you think? Um, It's difficult to know because it's only two days on, so I suppose the key example would be the next time that he finds himself somewhere where an inopportune photo opportunity might arise at the same time as as a matter of serious public outcry. Um, Certainly, I think it it came across as being very tone-deaf. I don't know how many people within the Taoiseach circle of handers would have actually been acutely aware of just how uh, insensitive that might have appeared as as a photo op. Um, Not to to explain away the Taoiseach's actions, just to mitigate for it, but I suppose it would be worth telling people for context that the, the combi lift factory in Monaghan where Fine Gael launched the campaign the other day has been a very regular stopping point for Fine Gael ministers in recent times because they love it as an example of businesses in the border region that they see themselves as having saved due to the actions and the deals that they've gotten on Brexit. So it's not at all the first time that ministers have been up there and it's almost become par for the course that every time you're there that a minister jumps into a forklift and has a look around the factory floor anyway, particularly given, of course, as Combilift is a forklift manufacturer. Now, whether it just might not have struck them that yesterday or that the day before might not have been the best time to do that, given what had been going on in Dublin, I don't know. There are also now a far bigger number of people within the Fine Gael media circle because ministers' advisors have basically been seconded back to party headquarters for a while and, and maybe it might be a case of too many cooks and nobody feeling like they have the authority to intervene and stop that. But certainly the photo op looked very, very bad and although Leo Varadkar may have been correct on the point of political policy that, you know, the Lord Mayor of Dublin is the person who is politically accountable for the actions of Dublin City Council. A, it was an official of Waterways Ireland who did this. It was nothing to do with the City Council at all. And B, the fact that the Lord Mayor of Dublin, as it happens, is a major threat to Noel Rock, who was one of Fine Gael's own TDs in Dublin North West. It all came across as being very politically charged. And certainly when you take the whole thing in concert, even though you might explain mm. away individual parts 
of Fine Gael and the Taoiseach's actions on Wednesday. Altogether, when you take them in the round, it, it was a very bad look and it's something that they probably had, no doubt, a bit of a post-mortem about afterwards to see if it was the sort of problem they could nip in the bud. Yeah, a very bad round uh, indeed uh, to be accused of uh, politicising the homelessness situation, let alone uh, the terrible misfortune of a, an individual like that. Yeah, well, but particularly given exactly where it was, that it was just along the canal, just beside uh, Grand Canal, just beside Leeson Street Bridge in the centre of Dublin, which of course is, is Dublin Bay South, which is the constituency of Owen Murphy, the housing minister, and of course you might say that it wasn't Owen Murphy or the central government's actions to decide to to clear the canal, but nonetheless it might well have been Owen Murphy's actions that meant that this man didn't feel like he could stay in any other alternative accommodation, and that may be something where the government has its own responsibilities. Equally, that area of the of the town, that kind of Wilson Terrace area beside Leeson Street Bridge, is somewhere which is undergoing massive development at the moment because there are more and more technology companies that are building major premises there with a view to it being their European headquarters. Some people might think, although there is nothing explicit to, to back this up at the moment, some people might think that there is an explicit agenda to tidy up that area because it needs to look respectable mm. for the, the multi-billion dollar multinationals that are moving into it. Of course, we don't know if there is any political link between one and the other, but certainly the fact that it happened on, on Owen Murphy's own doorstep almost literally is, is something which is uh, even extra agonising, electorally speaking, for Fine Gael. And that's just one of many remarkable stories, uh, I think, uh, relating to the homeless situation, which we'll hear more about later in uh, the programme with Mike Allen of Focus Ireland. Uh, but... Uh it's not how the government would have hoped the campaign would have gone so far. Homelessness and health were always going to be issues. I think the government would have preferred to have been talking about jobs, higher wages, tax cuts, mm. government investment, a buoyant economy and Brexit. Uh, it doesn't yeah, seem and, to be and they've, they've tried their damnedest to do that. And, you know, the, the event in Monaghan on day one was supposed to be a discussion or, uh, you know, focusing on the government's handling of Brexit and, and you know, that yes, when it didn't quite work out that way, when the events at the Grand Canal, um, you know, slightly undermined that, then yesterday again, excuse me, yesterday again, they were trying to talk about their handling of the economy and how their handling of Brexit would underpin the, the creation of 200,000 more extra jobs. And yet then, of course, it was events in Coolock and the ongoing feud in Drada, which overshadowed that as well. The one thing that might be something of a comfort to Fine Gael is that although, of course, they are already foot to the floor and they'll be pursuing a full campaign for the next three weeks, by and large, people only really tend to properly tune into an election campaign when the TV debates start underway and that when things really feel like they're getting going or when polling is, is within full view. Three and a half weeks is, relatively speaking, quite a short campaign, but we are still very much in the early days and it will only be towards the latter times that people are, are properly tuning in and engaging when they might not ordinarily be uh, watching political coverage. So there is an opportunity for, for Fine Gael to try and get the show back on the road or to be able to put their best foot forward, but certainly if they wanted to try and be proactive in the first couple of days and uh, events that have happened on their watch, irrespective of whether they are culpable or not, are things that have definitely cast a shadow. And when it comes uh, to Brexit, uh, it should have been a, a big selling card, a, an ace card, if you like, uh, for the government. Uh, but as the government itself has been saying during this campaign, it's only half time in uh, the Brexit game. And it seems as though there's many MEPs who would uh, agree with Fianna Fáil's Billy Kelleher, who government has been critical of. Uh, he's con- concerned about citizens' rights after uh, the withdrawal agreement is implemented. 
Yeah, and it's it's when you get to Billy Kelleher's when you realise why the government feels like it, or why Fine Gael explicitly rather I should say feels like it's able to perhaps make an electoral issue out of Brexit because on the face of it, and it's something that might have taken a lot of political correspondence by surprise when it first emerged as a theme. Mm. You know, it's very difficult for Fine Gael to some degree to try and hammer home Brexit or, or that its position on Brexit as being an electoral asset when, by and large, pretty much every one of the major parties was all behind uh, you know the government on that. It would all have largely ostensibly pursued exactly the same policy. But there are two, you know, elements or two two reasons why perhaps Fine Gael might be going for it a little bit more. Um, firstly is that it's actually a proxy for Fine Gael to point to their front bench and say, well, other parties may have had the same position, but did they have the personnel to make it so? If Fianna Fáil had been in power for the last four years, would they have had a Minister for Foreign Affairs or a Minister for European Affairs he would have been able to pursue successes in the way that we have been able to do. So it's a kind of a proxy debate which goes back to one of Fine Gael's stronger calling cards, which is the personalities and experience that they've got on their front bench. Uh, and the other, of course, is, as you mentioned, the, the position of Billy Kelleher, because ostensibly, if you say that there is no difference between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil's positions on Brexit and that they would have pursued the same objectives and perhaps might have reached the same goals, strictly speaking, although Fianna Fáil has underpinned the government for the last four years, the only material influence or sway that Fianna Fáil can have on Brexit is how they vote. And we've become so focused in the last six six or nine Mm -hmm. months or so as to how voting is going in the House of Commons, we forget that the European Parliament also has to ratify Mm -hmm. the actual deal. Mm -hmm. And Fianna Fáil at present only has one MEP and he says that he might vote against it, which of course then leaves Fianna Fáil open to the accusation that although they might have pursued a Brexit deal, of course pursuing a Brexit deal is all well and good if at your only opportunity you're prepared to discover it. And of course, you know, bear in mind Mm -hmm. if the deal were to be voted down, it's not going to be, but Mm -hmm. if it were you'd have a hard border in about two weeks' time. Okay, but over 600 MEPs share similar concerns uh, to those of Billy Kelleher, it, it would seem. Uh, time will tell how that will pan out, as mm. you say. It'll probably yeah, be agreed Billy Kelleher yeah. will most likely uh, end up voting for it uh, when all of uh, these issues are, are, are sorted yeah, out. So he, but even if he does, it's two mm. weeks of ambiguity around mm. his position where he has stated those concerns and now Fine Gael can use it to give Fianna Fáil a bit of a, a political kicking for the intervening period. Okay, and Fianna Fáil will say, though, that they been the responsible party. They didn't force an election because of uh, the threat of Brexit and what they did was provide stability uh, and it's uh, that card of responsibility that it will try to play. On the other hand uh, it's been criticised by Fine Gael for having destroyed the economy. Yeah, well the, the, the point about Fianna Fáil being responsible for the last four years is precisely necessary because of what happened the last time Fianna Fáil were in power. And, you know, it was interesting the first co- first uh, hours of this campaign, you're talking to Micheál Martin or anyone else, and you say, right, down to brass tacks, you know, b- people might say that you're very responsible in opposition, but last time you were in government, we all remember how that ended, and there's no getting away from that. What do you tell voters about moving on from that? And he says, well, you know, just look at the last four years and Leo Varadkar mm-hmm. promising to abolish USC and stating the date when it would go. Look how that worked out. So Fine Gael can't necessarily be trusted either. But Fianna Fáil has really staked its credibility for the last four years on the uh, adherence to confidence and supply. And there are plenty of times when plenty of TDs said now would be opportunistically a good time to collapse the government when they're looking a bit vulnerable, when they're looking a bit weak, when they didn't even necessarily know who their leader was going to be uh, to cut and run at this particular point. But Micheál Martin has known the whole way through that he has resisted the the urge for perhaps short-term gain. And he knows that after everything that has gone down the bridge between 2008 and 2010, the only way that Fianna Fáil can present itself at all as being credible is that when it, when it's, it reaches a major deal, one which puts itself in a difficult position, that it's prepared to stick through that deal until the very end. And for all of 
the, the failings of the government and any culpability that Fianna Fáil might have in keeping them in power, Micheál Martin can turn around to the electors and justifiably say that we struck this deal and we stuck to it. And the reason why we are going to the polls now and not in three months' time is not because we pulled the rug early. It is because we stuck to the letter of the deal the whole way through. We agreed to three budgets. We ended up passing four. And it is only because of independence, TDs, tabling motions of no confidence that we find ourselves now having to go early. And that, that's, whether people really tack onto that argument mm. for the next three weeks, we'll have to wait and see. But that is certainly what Michal Martin has staked his party's credibility on. Meanwhile, the Taoiseach has accepted an apology and Sinn Féin left red-faced over comments made by one of its councillors, Paddy Hoolan. Mm. And uh, interestingly, when he issued his apology stroke, non-apology for this yesterday, his argument was that his words have been misinterpreted or that people have put a meaning on them that he didn't intend it to be. But A, he didn't express what that interpretation should have been. And B, as far as I can make out, having gone looked through the podcast to try and hear the remarks in their full context yesterday, they appear to have been snipped out of the podcast in which they were made, I think, which of course means that anyone who did want to hear the context in which they were supposed to have been intended won't now be able to do so either. But again, it's a classic example of how campaigns can go off the rails. And we were talking about how Fine Gael hasn't mm. been able to, to put its own foot forward or to express its own initiative for the last little while. Sinn Féin yesterday wanted to talk about crime and it wanted to talk about particularly positions yeah. on pensioners. You know, that if, if the day had gone better for Mary Lou MacDonald, she would now be in today's papers or would have been on yesterday's news bulletins talking about how Sinn Féin wants to ensure that the retirement age is reduced from 68 back down to 65, where it was before the, uh, the the bad times of the dark days and the bailout. But of course, instead, she's talking about comments made by a new councillor, someone who doesn't have a very long record of, of action in party politics, Paddy Holohan, a former mixed martial artist, uh, and some of the, you might say, anti-Republican things that he said, because if you are truly a Republican, then you believe that every citizen has equal rights, equal responsibilities, and an equally strong voice, and to suggest that somebody may have a slightly different or lesser passion for the country than you because of their, their mixed ethnicity is, is something which seems to go against that. And it's, you know, like I said, yeah. it's a classic example of wanting to put your best foot forward and then the little things coming out in the long grass that trip you up. I wonder how much of a theme that will be over the next three weeks. All right, uh, and it, it may very well be, given some of uh, the candidates who are running as independents and otherwise, uh, I suppose. Uh, we've seen inappropriate comments already in this campaign. We saw them in the last by-election and in the mm-hmm. presidential election. Yeah, well, I, I, again, one of the, the interesting things about this, though, in terms of national airwaves, obviously I know that, that you will be focusing particularly on the three constituencies within NMFM's broadcast area, so it's slightly easier for, for shows like yours or for stations like yours to be able to give the independent candidate the, their fair crack of the whip. When it comes to, to national uh, broadcasts like ourselves in Virgin Media and, and my, my side gig and news talk as well, it's slightly more difficult to do because you can't really treat one independent candidate, you can't bring them into a debate or a national leaders debate, for example, and then treat them as being an exemplar of what independents across the country all think because... You know, I know that Michael Collins, for example, the independent TD who, who was bringing this motion of no confidence, was on primetime on RT the other night. And every time uh, he was introduced to the debate to talk about national politics, he managed to bring things back to his own constituency of Cork mm-hmm. Southwest, which, of course, he would because that's the only place he can get elected. So it's very difficult for independents to be represented in an aggregate way, particularly, of course, when not only is there such geographical split, but there's such an ideological split between independents, some of whom are quite conservative, some of whom are, are quite radical left as well. So it's difficult to do that. So whether independents, because their star seems to be on the way in a little bit, are actually able to put their best foot forward on a national basis, I think will be a big challenge this time, and they'll mm. be very much relying on 
on the smaller the, the local media to be able to, to carry their message because national media, it seems that perhaps they might have uh, missed the boat a little bit this time. All right, well, there's uh, three weeks for them to do that in. We leave there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us as always. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and a political columnist with the Meath Chronicle. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, reports uh, this morning in relation uh, to uh, that tent being lifted by an industrial machine with a a man inside uh, suggests uh, that the man doesn't know yet that he's lost his leg after it uh, being crushed by that machinery. It follows on uh, from a report of a, a woman who has died, a woman in her late 20s. Uh, she was reported dead at her hospital in uh, or her hostel in Dublin uh, and uh, images of an elderly woman eating her dinner off a, a windowsill on uh, Dublin Street. It is shameful. Uh, the Taoiseach agrees. Uh, Leo Radker said yesterday that uh, the housing crisis brings shames on all of us. Let's talk about this with Mike Allen, Director of Advocacy with Focus Ireland. A very good morning to you, Mike. And morning, thanks for joining us. Uh, I suppose we... Uh, these stories to the many tragic stories we've been hearing over many years now. Yeah, they're, they're, they're terrible stories, and and obviously the first thing is the concern of I think of everybody is is for the the, the, the man who is so terribly injured, and, and for the family of the, the the woman who died. These are really human uh, human stories that this brings to strong focus. The 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 fact that the homeless story is about people and their lives and, and what happens to them, and that to be homeless is to be extremely vulnerable. Um, it's very disappointing how um, the electoral process or the, the general election debate has, has reacted to, to, to these stories. They, they brought homelessness to where it should be as a top of the agenda. It's not the way we would have wanted it to see to be brought to the top of the agenda, but it brought it there. But I don't think anybody is any the wiser after uh, two days of the general election about what anybody is going to do about it. Mm. The Taoiseach has said that it's unacceptable. But what does it mean to say something is unacceptable? Quite clearly in every town and every city around us, we are accepting it on a day-to-day basis. You can't walk down the street in Dublin without some homeless person approaching you for uh, a few bob. It is acceptable. That's the point, isn't it? Mm. It is acceptable because we've been accepting it. Uh, We've been closing our eyes to it for years at this stage. And the reason this man doesn't know whether he's lost his leg or or not is because uh, people are hoping that he'll wake up out of a, a coma to discover that he has lost his leg. He may not wake up, I suppose. So I think a, a measure of let's hope he does wake up and, mm. and let's hope that mm. he can get back to, to whatever uh, full life he can have. Because I think one of the, the, the things that's really shocked me is not just the event and the terrible accidents involved. And of course, that has to be investigated as to, to how that could happen. Um, but the debate about it has been what people have been asking is, why was he in the tent rather than in emergency accommodation? Why wasn't he in emergency accommodation? Yeah. But as a society, we shouldn't be asking that question at all. We should be asking, why wasn't he in his own bed, in his own apartment, in his own safe home? Yeah. And unless we've got that at the heart of our response to homelessness, why aren't people in homes? And if we think that the answer to homelessness is more and more shelters, we're just going to end up with a, 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 the cities and towns dominated by the shelters. Local authorities, in the last four years, local authorities have opened more homeless shelter beds than they've built homes. Mm. That should, that's unacceptable. So once you've said something is unacceptable, the next thing you have to say is what you're going to do about it. Yeah. And we would really love to have a really intelligent debate, which isn't 
mudslinging, which isn't finger pointing, which isn't just about numbers from the political parties about what they're going to do about the problem. Because what we have to remember is that it is solvable. And if it is solvable, then what we need to do is discuss what the solutions are and what we as people need to do, what we need to do as as voters or as the public in order to support our politicians to deliver. And that does mean choices. Mm. But let's hear what those choices are. Well, that's it, isn't it? Uh, uh, Instead of apportioning blame, which I think is what you're saying, and finger pointing and so on, people should be offering solutions. But for as long uh, as we accept homelessness as a reality of life in this country, it will continue. If that is uh, the case, well, then we accept that emergency accommodation is a necessity. If we accept that, do we have to accept that emergency accommodation is not a safe place for people to stay? There's no reason why it should be um, uh, unsafe place for people to stay and nor is there a reason why we should rely on it so heavily i mean if you go back just 15 years um uh we had a very similar home level of homeless problem to finland for instance um during that last 15 years both countries have gone through an economic crisis we're not unique in that though we tend to think we are they have brought their uh, homeless problem down to they only have fewer than 100 people in homeless shelters and we have more than doubled the number of homeless shelters we have in the same period of time. So these things are the result of policies. These things are the result of decisions that are made. They're not just sort of, you know, uh, natural phenomena that we just have to shrug our our shoulders about. So rebuilding Ireland has a lot of positive elements, and you can argue that it sort of dealt with the the, the big hole that was in the ground in terms of our failure to deliver housing over a period of time. Or you could say it's a mess. We don't want to get into that argument. But one of the things that was remarkable about it was it had no targets for reducing homelessness or for ending homelessness. The first time for for a long period of time that we had that. So we're not looking for ridiculous targets of of political parties saying we'll end homelessness in a year or even, uh, even four years or something like that. But we do think that political parties should have an aspiration to bring homelessness down, and they should be able to say what they're going to go to do it and what implications that will have for people. So one of the obvious things that, that, that you know, I think, having said that, I need to talk about is the fact that everybody believes there's a wide consensus in our society we need more housing and that we need more social housing. But every time uh, local authorities propose more social housing, there is the local community say, no, we're not around here, or that's not the right place, or yes, we need social housing, but not near. We need a, uh, a political debate, which means that uh, people start to see new housing and uh, new neighbourhoods being mm. built and so on in a much more optimistic way, and they can understand how it fits in to building their own communities rather than it's resisted every time. Because if you are amongst those who've resisted new housing in your area, you are part of the problem. Now, you might have good reasons for doing so, but let's deal with those. Let's have a system in which we can actually resolve those things and get the housing built without constant being blocked by, 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 by uh, local, local objections. That needs a mobilization of people in a much more positive way than we've seen to date in, in the homeless crisis or certainly to date in, in, in the election. But is the consequence of the Rebuilding Ireland programme policy not that homelessness will be reduced, if not eliminated because it hopes to find housing solutions for 85,000 people, doesn't it? Well, it, it, its highest aspiration in delivering homes is to be, is to be next year, uh, which would be 25,000 new homes mm. in total uh, across the country. Now, the central bank and the SRI and, and, and anybody who's really looked at the, uh, the housing need into the immediate future are saying we need to deliver at least 35,000 homes a year to stand still. 
and we needed to be doing that for the last couple of years, so we've got a backlog in, in any case. So the aspiration in terms of housing um, in rebuilding Ireland is not enough to even reduce the problem, let alone turn it around. Now, you know, we're in an election, so you'd have to say, well, look, the government could say, that's fair enough, but we were starting from zero, and you have to accept they were starting from zero. But we're not talking about, I don't think a critique of rebuilding Ireland is necessarily uh, useful. What we need to say is, what are the next? What over? We may be electing a government for the next five years. Over that five years, that's a good period of time in which you could seriously turn the problem around. So, what are your targets? And they have to be at least thirty-five thousand. If if no, if if political parties programs for housing don't mean thirty-five thousand homes per year, then they need to explain how the. Um, how things are going to get better because they're not building even... Is that the point, that now is the time to ask that question? Because I think that's that's the government's argument in relation to this. They say they haven't had the time because they haven't had the wherewithal because the country was destroyed and realistically they've only had the last couple of years where money has been available to them to tackle the problem. Yes, and absolutely different voters will take different views on whether that's that's true or not and that's not anything that Focus Ireland would, 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 would comment on. What we're interested in is whether that's true or not, we're here now and we're planning what we're going to do for the next five years. So what it, are you committed? Are you, do you have plans to support or build 35,000 homes? How many of those will be social housing? How are you planning to do that? What are you planning to do about family homelessness? Like there's no family homelessness strategy. So homeless services historically have dealt with single people, mostly men, some women. The, the, almost 4,000 children in homeless services. There's no guidelines, no local authorities, any guidelines. The fact that we have constitutional amendment to protect the rights of the children, in none of that affects, has had any influence significantly on the way that we respond to families that are homeless. That has to change. We need a dedicated program to deal with the fact that we have so many children, so many families, in, uh, children in families who are, who are homeless. And then we've completely ignored as a society our youth homelessness problem. We know for a fact that a person who is homeless as a, as a young person is likely to be homeless, has a higher risk of being homeless for the rest of their lives. And yet youth homelessness has been completely ignored. And youth housing, like we have a whole generation growing up who, un, who are in precarious housing, who are paying extortionate rents or having to live for extended periods with their family. There is nobody talking specifically about how we address the youth housing and homelessness problem in a way which reflects the generational injustice um, which has been a result of the, the, the crisis uh, we're coming out of. And then we've also talked about the right to housing. Do the political parties support that there being a, a right to housing? That's not a right to a free home. It's a, right, it's a statement in our constitution that we think the common good that's in the constitution already includes access to an affordable and secure, and, and secure home. And the, the, the last thing we want people to talk about is we don't want to come out of this crisis uh, dust ourselves off, take a deep breath and find ourselves falling into the next housing crisis because that's what's happened over the last uh, 30 years. There's been home, housing crisis after housing crisis. So we're proposing that there should be a commission on housing which should bring everybody together from developers to opposition parties to organisations like ourselves and so plot out the next 20 years of how we're going to make sure that we fund our uh, housing supply through good times and bad times and build communities as well, build places where people genuinely want to live and raise their children and, and have a full life and give ourselves, when we get out of this crisis, enough time to sort of have a much more stable approach to, to the future. I think these are the sort of ideas that we'd like politicians okay. to be responding to, 
bringing into the political agenda and so on, rather than just shouting at each other. All right, and the politicians have uh, the next three weeks uh, to set out their stalls. We leave it there for the moment, Mike, and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Mike Allen, Director of Advocacy with Focus Ireland. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. The increased cost of insurance has led to a situation in this country where children can't run in schoolyards. Uh, It seems as uh, though it's impossible to have fun in this country uh, because of uh, the insurance restrictions uh, that there are on uh, bouncy castles, on uh, the uh, fun things that children do, whether that's play dens or indeed uh, on uh, their parents having their children in creches, uh, leisure centres, restaurants, hotels, and indeed every motorist in the country will tell you about uh, the problems that uh, alone businesses. Uh, the next sector to be hit, it seems, is nursing homes. Uh, the Irish Independent reporting yesterday that a leading insurer has said that they will stop stop offering liability cover to businesses uh, and uh, this could result in nursing homes closing or charging more. That's according uh, to Nursing Homes Ireland. Its chief executive is Tyg Daly. And a very good morning to you, Tyg, and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme. Liberty Insurance says it it won't be taking on any new business uh, and uh, existing customers uh, may see uh, their policies end in April. That's right. We were taken aback uh, somehow by the announcement of, of Liberty Insurance the other day. Uh, we're part of the uh, Alliance for Insurance Reform, and you mentioned the litany of issues around insurance uh, over the last while. Uh, we've been aware of the escalating insurance crisis in the nursing home sector for a number of years. Uh, our members have seen uh, double-digit increases, uh, and indeed, in a number of years ago, Jim Power, the economist, did a survey for ourselves. Uh, he, he reported that the increase over a six-year period was of the order of 136%. Um, so this is putting further financial strain on a sector that's already uh, under under financial threat in terms of sustainability, uh, and it is very, very concerning. Now, Liberty puts its decision down uh, to uh, the compensation claims uh, that are, are being made uh, by uh, people. Uh, what kind of claims are made against nursing homes? Yeah, well, I mean, look, the nursing home sector is no different to any other part of Irish society. We do live in a litigious society, unfortunately. I mean, there are very legitimate claims, there's no doubt, uh, but we are also aware, both from the courts uh, and indeed from media reports of court reporting, uh, that there are some spurious claims. Uh, I'm not saying for a second that the claims, the claims in the sector are spurious, but, um, you know, clearly the the um, awards that are being given uh, and the reform that's required mm. of insurance generally is not happening and that's echoed by uh, SMEs right across the country. Your, your listeners this morning will be aware that all our members are small family-run businesses uh, right across uh, the northeast, uh, Loudon Mead, uh, providing a vital service given the, the challenges in our acute hospital system. But surely uh, you're so indemnified against a lot of the claims uh, that oh, yes. the people that you care for might take in a, a different setting. I mean, if well, somebody was to fall in a nursing home, you wouldn't expect them to sue or their family to sue on their behalf. Well, I'd look at, you know, I'm not familiar with each individual case, obviously, but each case is different. You know, there, I mean, there may be contributory negligence either either by, uh, you know, the business or in this case, the nursing home or indeed by the individual themselves. But I think the bigger issue, Michael, is the, is the fact that, you know, this is an incessant uh, rise in terms of premium. Uh, and that's increasing the cost of care. I mean, ultimately, care is is a, is a people business. Um, you know, it's labour intensive, and the vast majority of the cost would be on on labour, uh, i.e., in terms of nurses and carers. But what we're seeing over the last number of years is that there's a myriad of other costs 
uh, and we call them state-sponsored inflation, such as commercial rates and now insurance. Yeah. And that's threatening the viability of existing homes and the sustainability of ex- existing homes. And what it will mean is that the cost of care is going to rise. And, and we made the uh, point yesterday that uh, you'll recall in December, the Minister for Children and Youth Affairs, Catherine Zappone, intervened in the childcare sector. Uh, we're saying uh, that given that that precedent has been established, then additional funding should be provided under the Fair Deal to mitigate these increases. All right. And this will become a, a problem for your members from yes. April onwards over the course of uh, the next 12 months, I, I gather, because yes. they'll have uh, year-long uh, insurance taken out uh, and uh, that's uh, the time when uh, Liberty will start pulling out. Uh, so they say that they will honour any contracts uh, that they've entered into. So it's over the course of uh, the 12 months from April. It is, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there are different people have different uh, timelines in terms of their existing insurance cover. So this is one uh, most definitely to watch. And I suppose the, the other point we'd make is, you know, any reduction in competition does lead, and, and that's borne out by statistics by the Alliance for Insurance Reform as well, mm. uh, is that if there is a reduction in, in underwriters or in provision, uh, that it does lead to in, in, in increased premiums. So uh, it's very worrying for, for uh, our members. And indeed, you know, given the, the pressure that's on the health service generally, mm. you know, we do need a, a well-functioning, um, community care service under Schlante Care. Nursing homes are a critical part of that. So any threat to the nursing home sector uh, will have a, a, a devastating impact on the wider health service. Worrying for your members or the people who rely on nursing home care, uh, who is it that will pay? Or is it both the nursing home that will pay increased premiums and that that will be added on to nursing home fees? Absolutely. I mean, it is a cost of doing business. So what it will mean is that at the outset, it will mean that the, the cost of care will be higher. Um, and we, we in the nursing home sector are uh, under the fair deal scheme, in effect, constrained uh, in terms of the, the fee rates that are provided. That's why mm. um, my, my call uh, around what happened in the childcare sector is, is both uh, appropriate and relevant because the state is the primary purchaser uh, and, and uh, funder of care under the fair deal scheme. Uh, and with costs continuing to rise, then it's incumbent on the state on the yeah. other side uh, to ensure that the funding is there to to, um, uh, to meet that. Unlikely, though, that homes will close, uh, I would have assumed, in that no, people, I mean, people, generally speaking, don't choose nursing home care. It's something that they require. Yes, absolutely. Look, we'd be hopeful. I mean, I suppose the point we've made is that Hickwell, the independent regulator, have highlighted that five nursing homes closed in, in, 20, uh, in 2018. Uh, and they made the point that it was due to financial pressure. So I think it's important from our listeners that we're not saying that there's any imminent or immediate threat. Um, the nursing home sector is a resilient sector. Uh, they're very, very committed people and they'll find ways. Uh, but what we are saying is that, you know, this incessant uh, increasing in the operating costs just cannot cannot continue. And two things, one is, as I say, the increase in fair deal. And secondly, the, the, the whole matter of the broader issue of, of reform of the insurance sector. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Ty Daly is Chief Executive of Nursing Homes Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing on Taoiseach Leo Vradker and uh, the Minister for Justice, uh, Charlie Flanagan, are in Drogheda today. On Taoiseach Leo Vradker is with us in studio. A very good morning to you and thank morning. you indeed for coming in to us uh, today. Your visit uh, to Drogheda is, of course, in the light of a, a general election, mm. but it follows the very brutal killing and indeed uh, the mutilation of a child, 17-year-old Keane Mulready-Woods. Law and order has broken down in Drogheda. It's broken down on your watch, Taoiseach. Uh, what do you have to say to the people of Drogheda? 
Uh, well, first of all, I want to express my revulsion and total combination, or total condemnation of um, the gruesome murder of of Keen Mulready Woods. Uh, I think the nation is shocked by it. Uh, just the depravity of the uh, of the murder itself. Um, I'm really here to uh, express my solidarity with the people of Drogheda, um, and I'm also here afterwards to meet with the with the Gardaí and tell them that they have uh, the support of government and to see if there's anything more that they need from us uh, to help them to uh, deal with this crime. Um, I really want people to know that crime doesn't pay, uh, that those who are responsible for this will be brought to justice, and also to encourage anyone who does have information to give it to us, because we need to secure, secure convictions here, and that's why we need information and we need witnesses, um, and we will defeat this. Mm. You know. We, you know, we had a serious organised crime problem in Limerick. We've largely gone on top of that. The same in the northeast inner city of Dublin, and then also you'll know about the problems we've had on the Cavan for Man border and the been mm. arrests there. So we've become accustomed to this. Uh, the exactly, helicopter yeah. was yeah. hovering over ahead last night when we lie in our beds and we hear the guard helicopter. We're all very worried about what has happened, uh, mm. and we're all very concerned about what we know has already happened, and we're living with it, and we're very familiar with the facts and the extra resources that have been given to on Guardi and the effort that have been made in terms of tackling this. So there's also a widely held belief uh, that this was neglected for a period of time and uh, people are getting very angry. Uh, A week from tomorrow, people in Drogheda will stand together to show their contempt for what's happening, for the violence and the lawlessness. Will you stand beside them, Taoiseach? Um, I I, I, I heard about... That that event happening. Um, I, I don't know if I'm available or not, but certainly if I'm if I'm invited to it and if I'm welcome there, um, I give that consideration. Mm. I don't even know if I'm in, in the country that day or not. As you can imagine, every day is uh, two weeks out from a general election. Um, I, I'm sure you will be in the country, would you not, Taoiseach? I, I, I'm still Taoiseach, mm. so I, yes. I do still mm. have my uh, my responsibilities mm. and obligations as Taoiseach and trying to obviously campaign mm. around them. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I'll certainly give a consideration and check mm. with, um, with with non-political, uh, non-partisan uh, event. You said you. Would stand behind the people of Drogheda. Will you stand alongside them and in solidarity with them? Uh, And there's a a number of reasons for that because uh, people wonder do politicians really care? Does the Taoiseach really care? Does the government really care? Or are are they platitudes that they're hearing from the government? Uh, And to be there would make a statement in itself but it would also give people a sense of security there was a a protest last April and people were afraid to come out in case of what might happen. If the Taoiseach was there people might feel that security would be in place as well Well I'm sure there will be security in place, Um, whether I'm there or not um, the security will be in place Um, but you know uh, we do care and not just me all politicians care about uh, public safety. Um, I represent a constituency of Dublin West it includes um, uh, you know the Banchestown area, the Cordoff area, areas where we've had uh, shootings as well, uh, and very serious uh, criminal activity and gangs, um, and we take them on, uh, and we beat them, and we make sure that areas become safe again. And I can totally understand how the people of Drogheda must must feel at the moment. Uh, the people are afraid to go about their normal lives, mm. and Drogheda is actually a great town. You know, mm. the biggest town in Ireland. Um, last time I was here, I was here for the FLA, which is a great success. Yeah. A lot of jobs in the town, um, a great history as well, uh, tourist potential, so much going for it. And events like this and, really, and that really, really do so much damage. The crazy thing. It's the point um, that so many people have been making. The Guardi estimated that there's 100 people or so involved mm. in this feud between the two gangs. Well, in Drogheda alone, between the two gangs. In a town of 40,000 people, it's incredible to think that they're holding the town and its people to ransom. Mm-hmm. It is. And... But, you know, people, I'd ask people not to give up hope. 
uh, you'll remember the mm. uh, serious crimes that we had in, in Limerick a few years ago uh, and we got those people behind bars and that city has really bounced back I think and you know I really just want people to know that we're totally mm. behind the people of Drada and the reason why I'm here today really is to meet with the Gardaí to get a briefing from mm. them that's happening okay. after this and okay and we'll put that question that I put to you earlier on we'll put that to all of the party leaders because it is uh, uh, hoped that this will be a non-partisan uh, event. Mm. Uh, I think you're saying if your diary allows, you'll attend on the 25th. But we'll put that uh, question to all party leaders. Uh, there are a number of other questions in terms of, of tackling this. Uh, can you pledge today to restore community policing levels locally? Um, th- that's a matter for the Garda Commissioner, as you know, and for uh, the, the Chief Super. It's something I'll certainly speak to, to them about later in the morning. Um, no politician ever does or should decide how Garda are deployed. That's... Uh, best done by the people who know how to do policing and that's the Garda Commissioner and his team. What I can pledge to uh, is that we'll continue to increase uh, resources for the Garda, uh, the budget and the number of Garda. Um, we've, you know, since Templemore was reopened mm. and was reopened on our watch, we've recruited thousands of extra Garda. Um, okay, but as the Taoiseach, do you recognise and accept that that is one of the issues at the root of the problem? I think I think there are a number of issues at the root of the problem. Um, this is a very serious crime. So the kind of response that we need to this is, for example, the response of the armed support unit. And for the first time now, we have an armed support unit in every region in Ireland. There's also the common, or sorry, the criminal assets bureau, which is something mm. we set up in a previous government, and that takes the assets off these people. And that's really important mm. because we have to show the crime doesn't pay. We have to show young people that this isn't a way to make a good, easy living. And that's why the criminal assets bureau was really important too. And also, just a few years ago we set up the Garda National uh, Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, a little bit like uh, an Irish FBI okay. within the Garda. So they're the kind of things mm. we're doing, and I can certainly commit that we'll uh, continue to have those in place, and we'll recruit an extra 700 guards uh, every year. Uh, that is, of course, all totally dependent mm. on the economy staying strong and the public finances being managed well, but you can trust me more so than anyone else to do that. Okay, and people locally then will hope that they are deployed here. Can you pledge to restore and possibly increase funding to addiction services and to the mental health services? Again, mm-hmm. uh, uh, areas that people would say are at the root of this issue. Yeah, well, just in relation to mental health funding, it, it wouldn't be a case of restoration for the first time ever. Uh, this year, the budget for mental health is over a billion euros. Uh, that's, you know, 700 and something uh, when we came mm. to office. So it's not a case of restoration. We've never invested more in mental health. And actually, I think we are seeing some results. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people have been affected by suicide, for example, and, mm. and I have in in, uh, in my life. Um, and the suicide rate is 30 or 40 percent lower than it was mm. in 2012. And, you know, that in part. At but least, we see millions allocated to mental health and it goes unspent. Uh, we hear of people going into the local psychiatric mm. unit and uh, release then uh, and ending up in trouble or we not do, being admitted. Uh, we, we do. Mm. And, mm. you know, ultimately mm. it's, it's doctors who mm. decide who's admitted and who's not. Mm. Um, and But like I say, we've never invested more in mental mm. health. Uh, we are seeing some improvements as a result of that. And again, if we keep the economy strong, if we manage the public mm. finance as well... What we about addiction services, Taoiseach? Because the funding, mm. as it stands, is a little over 900,000. It was around 1.4 billion in 2007 Sorry. for the northeast region. The, 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 the addiction services for the Northeast Drug Task Force region. Oh, sorry, for the drug, the drug task force. Yeah, well, what we did is we, is we stopped the cuts for the, in the drug, drugs task forces. Um, they had been cut back. And then from 2014 onwards, mm. actually, as soon as um, I became Minister of Health, we stopped cutting them. Uh, and we will certainly uh, look at increasing funding for them as well. Um, but that's not something that you can promise to now, given how way below... Mm. 
the funding is now in comparison to 2007 and how far higher the problem is? Well, you know, on addiction services, we have increased funding resources for that over the last couple of years, and we will. The drug task forces are, you know, a particular aspect of the response, and we just need to make sure that any money that goes through the drug mm. task forces um, goes to the people who need it and goes to the services who need it. And that, that is generally the case, but we have had, have had some difficulty with okay. some drugs task forces that we can't... Uh, Okay, I think, Taoiseach, uh, when you check the figures, you'll see that uh, the region in the northeast is underfunded uh, and by a significant amount in uh, relation to funding from 2007. Perhaps perhaps Uh, to answer your question in a different way, like one thing I I strongly believe hmm. is that a government needs to be tough on crime and also tough on the causes of crime. Mm. I know that's an old Tony Blair slogan, but it's mm. one that I actually thinks sums up good policy yep. to be tough on crime, and we need to be tough mm. on this crime. And as you and said earlier know, on, it's up to the Garda Commissioner yeah, to deploy the and, police and force in whatever sure way. he has the resources to deploy, and that, that's our And job. the legislation. And the legislation. But just, Can just, you pledge just, to just introduce for, effective gangland thing. legislation, Taoiseach? Because uh, people say the mm. laws don't support the guards. Well, that's not what the Gardaí say, and we're absolutely open. I have the Minister of Justice here with me. Um, mm. I can get the Attorney General on the phone. Yeah. Um, we're open to any new legislation. Okay, well, I can knock on almost any door in this town, Taoiseach, and the people inside will take you around and show you the fellows who are involved in this dispute, in this Mm. criminal Mm. gang feud, in these killings, in this murder, in this barbarity. Uh, So, we have extensive powers under the existing law and we have the Special Criminal Court and these sorts of criminals can be brought to the Special Criminal Court in the way we would with uh, you know, so-called distant mm. Republican terrorists, and you know the crimes they've committed. Mm. You know the cr- crimes like murder, crimes like drug dealing, crimes like dismembering someone. Like these are already crimes. Mm. It's not so much uh, new laws that we need; it's evidence uh, and police, so we can get convictions. But just to finish a point I was trying mm. to say it, to answer your question on resources, because sure. I think this is important. Uh, w- one program that we implemented in government over the last couple of years, actually directed from my department, something kicked off by Enda Kenny, was the Northeast Inner City Task Force. And that really looked at that area in Dublin's northeastern city and saw how we could tackle some of the underlying causes of crime, you know, the disadvantage, um, you know, the lack of parental supervision, all those things that cause people maybe to go down the uh, pathway of crime. Uh, and one thing I would like to do if I'm re-elected to office is to pick maybe six or seven other areas in the country and adopt that approach, that same approach, which has had some success. It's not hasn't solved all the problems mm. by any means, but has has some success in Dublin's northeast inner city, and do that in six or seven other places around the country. And I would have thought, given what's been going on here, that Drada would be the kind of place we could do that. Mm. Uh, learning from what we've, learning from the successes and also the mistakes that we've made in the northeast. Do you accept each other that? Uh, this happened under your watch uh, and that you uh, allowed the situation to lapse to the extent that we're in today. I mean, if we go back uh, to one of uh, the first shootings, I think it was probably the second shooting that took place in this town in relation to this feud, just up the road from us here in the M1 retail park, uh, where you have places like Woody's and Smith's Mm -hmm. Toy Store and whatever, and people going about their business every day. And at three o'clock in the afternoon or thereabouts, shots were fired indiscriminately at mm-hmm. an individual. At the time, there was one guard car patrolling the town. That, that, that was very um, very scary, uh, that. And, you know, the fact that a shooting like that can happen at a retail park is the reason why people are so concerned. Um, I'm, I'm told anyone, again, I'll check mm. this with the, with the guardie, that there's about 40 vehicles uh, assigned to the region. So why there is only one available at that point in time, I can't explain, but the 40 or so vehicles mm. do exist. Well, we're told that's not the situation now. We knew that that feud mm. was underway at the time. 
I, I'm, I'm sure there was more than one vehicle mm. in the division. <laughs> oh, yeah, you no, know, no, I'm just saying why at, there was only at the one time of the time, shooting. Mm. You know, that really mm. is mm. what an mm. operational matter for, yeah. the, for, for the police. Or, or, or can you comment on how mothers felt when their children were out playing in a housing estate and uh, shots were fired at a, an individual or how a woman narrowly dodged a, a bullet as mm. she was innocently walking down the street in Hardman's Gardens? Yeah, well, they must have been terrified. Um, we had, um, in my constituency, only a few months ago a shooting that occurred outside of a secondary school and I remember at the time you know the response locally that people were uh, really afraid uh, because the attacks were so indiscriminate you know that somebody could easily be caught uh, in the crossfire and the kind of people who perpetrate these crimes don't really care mm. um, they don't care if they uh, injure innocent people um, but that's why we need to get them behind bars mm. and that's really what I'm here to say uh, is that um, crime doesn't pay uh, that those responsible are going to be arrested they're going to be put behind bars and we need the help of anyone who has information who has evidence who's willing to be a witness uh, to come forward and give the Guardi that, that, that information so mm. so we can get these people banged up where they need to be and I want people mm. to know that if they do give us that information that if they agree to be witnesses that they will be protected Okay, and just to conclude Taoiseach uh, perhaps uh, you'd speak to local people directly this morning I mean perhaps you'd speak to the taxi drivers who tell us they're afraid to stop at a, a red light in case a gunman comes along and targets a passenger in the car or children who are afraid to go into town on their own and are asking their parents for a lift, or their parents who stay awake at night waiting for them to come home in case they don't. You know, I'll absolutely do that. And uh, not my first visit to Drogheda certainly mm-hmm. won't be my last. Yeah. And uh, on every occasion I'm here, I get a chance to speak mm. to the, the good people of this town. I'll do that again. Sure, I mean, but can you say something to us on the programme today that will give those people reassurance? Well, I, want, I suppose the reason why I'm here is to do exactly that, to give them the assurance that um, the government totally understands how serious the situation is, uh, that it's unprecedented, uh, that we're on, on your side uh, as a town. Um, and the next thing I'm going to do is meet with the Gardaí, get a briefing from them, find out if there's anything additional that they need, uh, because we need to demonstrate uh, to the public that uh, these people are going to be put behind bars and this town be made safe again. Okay, Taoiseach, thank you indeed. You have a busy day ahead. Uh, I know you have to meet with the Guard Commissioner and you're around the country, obviously, on the campaign trail. And thank you indeed I for am. coming this, to us this morning. This is my number one priority today. I guarantee you that. Okay, thank you very much indeed. On Taoiseach, Leo Vratker. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, our interview, obviously, with uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Vratker, has uh, concluded, but the Taoiseach has not left uh, the LMFM studio in a, a couple of minutes' time. He'll be speaking with national reporters. He'll be taking questions from national reporters. And you'll be able to hear uh, that question and answer session. We'll bring it to you live on the programme. As I say, in the next few minutes, uh, I'm not sure what interest there will have been nationally in uh, the question about the Taoiseach coming to Drogheda again on uh, the 25th of this month, which is a week from tomorrow, and that's when a demonstration will take place by the people of Drogheda who will stand together uh, against uh, the violence and uh, the lawlessness that has consumed people uh, in uh, this part of uh, the world, particularly in the last few days, but certainly over the last couple of years. Uh, the Taoiseach said he wasn't sure what was in his diary at this stage, but if his diary is free, he certainly hopes to be here. So we'll be interested to hear uh, if uh, that is uh, the case after he's met with his officials in between our interview and the questions from the National Journalists. Anyway, let's find out what you've been saying to 
to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and uh, text messages that have been coming to us uh, this morning. What have people been saying, Marie? Tom was in touch just listening into your interview with the Taoiseach and says the Taoiseach is saying that um, the legislation is in place to deal with these criminals that they can be bo- that they can uh, be brought to a special court why are, is, this n- is this not being implemented Tom wants to know mm. um, another listener says these kids all fall through the cracks and are preyed upon by the drug gangs they are given the dole rather than given a career option not everyone can go to university there should be encouragement for kids to go out to work in practical labour positions if they don't have the education level a new apprenticeship scheme to get these children off the streets and into jobs will go a long way offer tax breaks to companies to take on children in the 16 to 20 year old age group with no leaving cert that will give them an option in life There'll always be some who will slip through the cracks, mm. but these children are being lost. Yeah, and I suppose uh, that was one of uh, the questions that we put to the Taoiseach about the children who fall through the cracks and if uh, addiction treatment services are available to them or not and uh, the funding that uh, the government allocates uh, to those services and how that has been dramatically cut and falls way behind what it was in 2007 today. And we've been hearing many complaints from the local groups who provide those services in recent months and uh, the Taoiseach, as you mentioned, uh, saying uh, that the legislation is in place. Many public representatives telling us that it is not robust enough uh, and that despite all of the knowledge that there is about who's involved in this criminality, nobody is being brought before the Special Criminal Court uh, and indeed I think there was only four such cases in the course of the last year. Sean says, unfortunately, once again, the gangs are winning. The Gardaí will be out in force for two weeks, then they will disappear again. Nothing changes. As a father of four children, I have no confidence that the Gardaí have the resources needed to tackle this, despite Mm. what the Taoiseach is saying. They know who these people are, but don't seem to be able to arrest them. Something needs to change or it will continue to get worse. Politicians offering sympathy. I have heard it all before, Michael. Ask them how they can change the law to allow the Gardaí to do the job. Give the Gardaí guns if they have to, because they also have a right to protect themselves against these thugs. Well, I think that Taoiseach is probably correct, and I think that we can expect arrests in relation to the murder of Keane Mulready Woods. I think that's just a matter of time, and that those arrests are inevitable at this stage, and prosecutions will ensue. But I can understand what our caller is saying, and I think a lot of people will identify with what's being said and would expect that these problems will continue for some time to come. Another listener didn't want to give a name. Um, Michael emailed us to say that this is a particularly savage murder and that sympathy goes to the family. Feels that a threshold was passed a long time ago, that homes have been petrol bombed as people were asleep in their beds. Mm. It was only by the grace of God that no person was burned to death. We have enough laws to deal with these criminals. Why are they being allowed out on bail when it is certain that they will re-offend? One change is needed. At three strike, you're out for serious crime. Yeah, well, there's no doubt about it. Uh, People are upset and they are afraid and they want action. The Taoiseach is here 
today, as is uh, the Minister for Justice, and uh, both senior politicians say that they are here to listen to the concerns uh, that people have. Noreen is listening into the show this morning and just wants to make the point that Keane, the young teenager who was murdered, was that a teenager? And just it's just wondering that has heard the reports that apparently he was warned by the Gardaí mm. that his life was in danger two mm-hmm. weeks ago. Was it not time then for Tusla to get involved mm. and maybe pick him up and take him off the streets mm. and mm. make him safe? Because as you have been emphasising, Michael, he was a child. Yeah, a question of child protection. Yes. If it was known that uh, there was a threat to his life, a very good point, I think. We're going to take a, a quick break. Uh, we hope that when we come back, uh, we'll be able to hear the questions and answer session uh, the doorstep interview, uh, as they put it, uh, between national journalists and on Taoiseach Leo Radger here in the studios of LMFM. Michael Reed on LMFM. Right, uh, there's uh, possibly a couple of uh, grey areas uh, that uh, were brought uh, to the attention of uh, the Taoiseach, one to do with funding for addiction services uh, locally. In 2007, 1.4 million euro was made available to the North East Regional Drugs Task Force area this year and last year. That figure has been less than 930,000 euro. Uh, and uh, of course uh, there's the question about what the Taoiseach might or might not be doing on uh, the 25th of this month that's a week from tomorrow when uh, a demonstration will take place in Drogheda. Yesterday the Taoiseach said we stand right behind the people of Drogheda. The question for the Taoiseach was uh, this morning if on the 25th he will stand beside and in solidarity with the people of Drogheda and come along to that demonstration to support the repulsion that people have for the violence and lawlessness uh, that has become part and parcel of life in this part of the world. In the meantime, uh, the Taoiseach is speaking with his officials. Reporters from around the country are waiting uh, to put questions uh, to the Taoiseach and I'm sure that there'll be lots of questions to do with housing and health and other issues as well as crime. Uh, But we'll be able to hear all of that as soon as it happens. In the meanwhile, we'll go back to you and some more of your comments. And Marie, what else have you got for us there? Celeste tweeted us listening in to your interview with the Taoiseach. How exactly will he stand with the people of Drogheda? He'll be gone soon enough along with Charlie Flanagan and not even give us a second thought. While we are the ones who have to continue living in fear and wondering what is going to happen next, it's time to bring in the army. Well, we'll follow that up with the Taoiseach. The Taoiseach said he'll check his diary uh, and we'll see uh, if he is available and if he will be attending that rally a week from tomorrow at two o'clock, by the way. Mary phoned in. She's not from Drogheda, but she lives in a rural area between Navan and Kells. And she says that it's not just in Drogheda that people are living in fear. She says that they suffered a terrifying break-in to their home and that she sleeps sleeps in her bed at night, scared out of her wits. And she says, will you say that to the Taoiseach, that there are people from all over Ireland in fear because law and order has broken down? Okay. Good morning, Michael. I've been listening to your show the past couple of days and following the horrific situation unfolding in Drogheda. This comes in from an angry and upset mum. I completely agree with everything that was said on your show yesterday and I'm happy to see all our public representatives standing together on this horrific matter. What 
we the people need now is all of our representatives on the town and surrounding areas to come together publicly for the people of the area and show support and backing to the good people of Drogheda who are now afraid to go on the town to conduct their normal day-to-day business. Mm. We are calling on leadership, support and backing. These people need to be shown that they are not in control of our town. Well, uh, those people may argue that point. Uh, They may argue it uh, through the barrel of a a gun, uh, but uh, there is no doubt that this has been brought uh, to the attention of uh, the highest office in uh, the land, uh, the Taoiseach, and indeed the Minister with Responsibility for Policing, the Minister for Justice, uh, are both in town today and they're en route to Drogheda Garda Station via LMFM. Uh, I think uh, the Taoiseach uh, is uh, leaving the building uh, as we speak and is about to take questions just outside the doors of LMFM from National Journalists and we should be able to go over to that in a moment. Maybe we can get one or two more comments before the Taoiseach uh, does speak to journalists. Yes, quickly, Matthew and Drogheda just wants to make the point that we've had a situation in Drogheda where CCTV cameras weren't working and surely this should be considered a priority. All right, I'll cut you there, Marie. We're going over to the Taoiseach now. So here in uh, Drogheda today, uh, first of all, to express my uh, revulsion uh, and condemnation of the very serious crime that has taken place here um, and also to uh, assure the people of Drogheda that the government is 100% behind them, that we're going to get these people behind bars and that we're going to make this town safe again. Uh, here at the Minister for Justice and uh, Deputy O'Dowd and after this I'm going to go to the Garda station to get a briefing from the Garda and find out from them if there's uh, any anything else we can do, any more we can do uh, to support them in their efforts. Um, I really want to say to people across the country uh, and also people here in Drada that crime doesn't pay, um, that we will get these people behind bars and make this town safe again. And I really want to encourage anyone who has evidence or information to please come forward uh, because to get people into the special criminal court, to get them convicted, we need evidence. Uh, the Guardian need information uh, and people who bring that information forward or agree to become witnesses will be protected. Teacher, do you agree with uh, the Guardian Commissioner's pre-Christmas assessment that the border area isn't lawless? Because surely a murder like this and the brutal circumstances show the criminals here don't fear the law. Yeah, I'm not, not sure I'd... I think we were referring to there was the Fermanagh Cabin area. I'm not sure Drada Kulak would be considered to be the border area, but I suppose that's not really not really your question. Um, you know, what has to happen is that we restore law and order uh, to any part of our country um, where there are serious crimes occurring. And, you know, I know Drada well. I'm here every couple of months. Drada is a great town. Uh, did a fabulous job around the FLA. Um, there's economic opportunities here. Unemployment is down by half. Uh, the hospital's improved immeasurably in recent years. It has a great history and has a great potential. Okay, unfortunately, our connection seems to have dropped out. Uh, we'll rectify that for you as quickly as possible. Uh, I'm not sure why that might have happened. Uh, the Taoiseach uh, is uh, speaking to reporters outside uh, the offices of LMFM. He's at uh, the front door of the building, as I understand it. Uh, But uh, for some reason, the microphone has failed us. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to restore that and get back uh, to that question and answer session in the next couple of minutes. Uh, Marie, uh, 
we may have to cut across That's you if okay. we go back to the Taoiseach uh, but in the meantime uh, tell us some more of yes. the things that people have been saying to you. Ask the Taoiseach the following the suspected perpetrators and indeed victims of this week's murder could probably have scores of previous convictions yet the courts system were unable to deal with them sufficiently would it be fa- fair to say that if some of these were dealt with more severely then this week's crime may not have happened at all. Mm, yeah pertinent question of ever. Yes. Another caller says that um, the atrocious savagery of that young man's death is as a result of the very lucrative drugs market and the wealth these criminals can easily get their hands on from engaging in it. I think that there needs to be an onus on the politicians from the top right down to get together to address this situation and give the people of Drogheda the peace that they deserve, Mm. Michael, to live their lives. Because for so long, over the past two years, people literally have been living in fear and it cannot be allowed to continue. Well, I mean, we've made the point several times over. There's a a population of about 40,000 people in uh, Drogheda. About 100 people are involved uh, in this feud the criminality and the lawlessness uh, and uh, the rest of the town is being held to ransom and I think people would have felt that acutely listening to the Garda helicopter hovering overhead again last night. That's right, Tom and Drogheda, the gangs are out of control, we have no law and order. Get the army to patrol the streets of our town to protect the ordinary people. Get the council to evict those who are causing trouble in housing estates. We need to get our streets and our town back. So lots of very strong comments very, coming very in. Very, very strong comments, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. to- Tommy from Dundalk, I, I suppose people are listening from all over mm. and uh, seeing what's going on here and a lot of other communities okay, affected. I think we can, we've restored the connection there, Marie. We'll go back to the Taoiseach. Our visit here this morning is to offer... Reassurance to the this people. This is the of Minister for Justice. Uh, there are a small number of ruthless criminals in this town uh, that will be brought to justice. And this is my third time here with Deputy Fergus O'Dowd uh, in the last nine months. Uh, our job uh, as government uh, is to assure communities we do that by ensuring our legislation is robust and in order. Uh, and secondly, on the matter of resources. Uh, and there has been a considerable and significant improvement uh, in resources here in Drogheda. Uh, this has been a brutal and heinous crime. Uh, there's an ongoing and intensive Garda investigation. Uh, I'm satisfied from talking to the Garda Commissioner as recently as yesterday uh, that, that progress is being made. Uh, and this brutal murder uh, must be seen as a line in the sand as far as gangland criminals are concerned. Uh, and our message is that there is no hiding place here in Drogheda or across the country. Does it, is this going to reassure people, though? Like, I mean, is men in suits turning up in Drada, whatever their office, going to reassure people people are afraid to leave their houses at night or let their sons and daughters walk the streets? I, I think what's going to reassure people is the increased Garda presence that we've seen in Drada. You know, a 50% increase in three years, 50 more Garda assigned uh, to this, and there will be more. Uh, I'd hope that me being here with the Minister for Justice uh, is a gesture of solidarity and a gesture of support and that people will see it as such. Um, but what really will reassure people, and I know this from uh, when we've had uh, serious crimes in other parts of the country, what will really reassure people is arrests uh, and convictions, and that's what needs to happen here. But for that to happen, we need evidence. really want to encourage people who have information who have evidence to come forward and they will be protected if they do so. Can I ask you and the Minister going going to visit families? um, The task force that you pledged, another six or seven, I think it was 1.6 million went towards the north inner city. 
what areas are you saying that you'd like a task force in and around the country? And will your manifesto pledge, I think when you top that up, would be nearly 20 million to roll out another six or seven task force. Will you be uh, dedicating that money as you uh, go forward in this election? Uh, this will be in our manifesto. Uh, I think what we've done in Dublin's northeast inner city has made a difference because you need to be tough on crime, but you also have to be tough on the causes of crime. And that means uh, removing some of the uh, issues that cause people to go down uh, the road of crime, uh, disadvantage, um, lack of parental supervision, uh, all of those things. Um, and what has been done in Dublin's northeastern city, I think, has made a difference. Uh, what I want to do, if returned as Taoiseach, is to expand that approach to other parts of the country, and that will be in our manifesto. Uh, I'm not going to list the areas, um, uh, but uh, I think you would logically focus on those areas uh, of deep disadvantage and areas where there has been uh, violent crime. Well, okay, thanks, Tisha. Uh, we'll be in the manifesto. Yeah. 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 for this to be happening. This has been going on for many, more, long over a year now, as Fergus and Adam tell you beside you. Is it good enough for the self-proclaimed party of law and order to let this happen on its watch? You know, Finnegan is the party of law and order, and people know that. Uh, we're the party that has restored guard recruitment, has given the guardy more resources than ever before, a budget of 1.9 billion for this year. And if we keep the economy strong, uh, if we continue to mine the public finances as we have, we can continue to invest in the Gardaí. Uh, and also we can continue to invest in taking on disadvantage and poverty, which, as you know, has gone down uh, five years in a row uh, on our watch, something uh, not done for a very long time. Okay, thank, thank, you. thank you, everyone. Can I ask one question? Okay, Are you going to declare fraud? I think, I think that may, may be the end of it. Um, it seems as though the Taoiseach is wrapping up there. Uh, but... Uh, you're welcome to make comment on what you've been hearing. Uh, apologies for the break uh, in uh, the connection there between uh, that uh, question and answer session and our studio. Uh, but uh, if you'd like to make comment on uh, the Taoiseach's interview or uh, the interviews, uh, the questions that you've been listening to there, you're welcome to do so. You'll come back, I hope, uh, with some of those comments before will, we Michael. finish up, Marie. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we'll take a, a break uh, and uh, we'll be back with more in a moment. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, staying with uh, the Taoiseach uh, and indeed uh, Fine Gael, but going from crime and back uh, to the general election, although some might say that there's no difference uh, between the two, but to other issues uh, to do with uh, the general election, Fine Gael has been making a lot out of how it has handled Brexit and is also saying that it's only half time on Brexit and they may very well be right because, as we heard earlier on in the programme, it needs uh, to be ratified not just by Westminster but also by the European Parliament. We're joined by Karen Coleman who's uh, the editor of Europarl Radio which reports on uh, the European Parliament for Irish radio stations and a very good morning to you Karen and uh, thanks for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. I'm seeing a, a political row at home uh, between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael after Fine Gael uh, being accused of adding a union jack flag to the lapel of Billy Kelleher's jacket in a, a tweet uh, and this is because Billy Kelleher has said he doesn't know whether he'd be able to vote in favour of uh, the withdrawal agreement as an MEP. But he's not the only one who has concerns about citizens' rights. And indeed, there was a vote on Tuesday night in the European Parliament and 610 MEPs clearly expressed concern uh, about uh, the settlement scheme. Yes, good morning, Michael. Good morning, Pleasure as always uh, to join you on the show. In fact, I interviewed Billy Kelleher on that very point during the week in the European Parliament in Strasbourg. And you're absolutely right. He is not the only MEP who's expressing concerns about the rights of citizens, those living in the UK, EU citizens living in the UK, mm. and 
UK citizens living in the rest of the EU post-Brexit. Um, and, and overwhelmingly, as you just said, over 600 MEPs voted on a resolution which expresses its concerns about the future process. So there's now going to be an application-based process. So for the three and a half or so million EU citizens who will be living in the UK post-Brexit, they already should be going through an application process to ensure that they can live the rest of their lives there. And also, of course, there's confusion too about what's going to happen with UK citizens living in the rest of the EU. And the UK, uh, the European Parliament ha- held a debate and they held the resolution on that. And what Billy Kelleher says is that there's confusion about what will be the status of those EU citizens living in the UK after Brexit. And the example Billy gave to me in an interview was, let's say there is um, somebody living in the Republic of Ireland from another part of the EU, maybe a Polish person, and that person decides to go and live in Northern Ireland. Mm. There may be confusion about what their status will be and that there's going to be a watering down of their rights. And also similarly the case if EU citizens continue to live in the UK, there isn't certainty. This is what the MEPs mm. fear uh, about there is, their future. The, there is a process a- agreed, and that's an independent authority yes, yes. in the UK. But Billy Keller and other MEPs have a problem with the UK establish, establishing its own independent authority, if you like. Yes, they say that they would prefer an, uh, uh, the establishment of a joint European Parliament-UK scrutiny mechanism. And they're concerned that perhaps that independent authority mightn't be as independent as the UK may be saying. And that's why they have been raising this issue. Some of them have been expressing doubts about whether they would vote for the Brexit withdrawal agreement if this wasn't clarified. Now, I asked Billy Kelleher about this because, of course, the Union Jack has to do with the fact that Billy Keller at some stage seemed to be saying he wouldn't vote for the Brexit withdrawal agreement because of these concerns. Now, Mm. he clarified that with me during the week and he was saying, well, you know, he had doubts about it, but he was saying to me he would vote for the Brexit withdrawal agreement. And I don't see the MEPs rejecting the Brexit withdrawal agreement because of this. So I think they will push hard on trying to see if they can get more clarification on it before the vote, which is due to be held in the European Parliament on the 29th of January. But I think it is a sign of concerns about the way the UK is going to go once it leaves the bloc on the, uh, at the end of January and a, mm. and a sign as well of how difficult maybe future trade negotiations are going to be with the UK once they get underway late February, early March. And it, when it comes down to it, uh, there's legal uncertainty uh, about people's status as Europeans living in the United Kingdom or indeed their rights if they are living there. Yes, and one of the points that Billy Kelleher also made to me was about qualifications. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so he said that it was unclear, say, for example, somebody has nursing or medical qualifications that would have been achieved in uh, an EU 27 country and um, they're living, they go to live in the UK or they're living there now how will those qualifications be seen in the future? And will they be recognised in the same way as those of people who would would have been, you know, had had their nursing qualifications in the UK itself? So there's not certainty about 
their, their status, their rights, their rights to social welfare, even though we thought they had been achieved because, mm. as you know, of course, the rights of citizens was a key part of brokering the withdrawal agreement and the EU27 pushed hard for those rights as indeed, of course, the concerns about UK people living in the rest of the EU as well. So now, although people thought that those rights have been achieved, there seems to be concern that they're not as clear and there isn't as great, or there isn't going to be as much transparency mm. on those rights as people initially thought. All right, uh, but there was massive uh, support uh, for the position or the concerns that Billy Keller has. Uh, a motion was adopted by 610 yes. votes, 29 against and 68 <clears throat> abstentions. Uh, does it call into question at all as to whether uh, the European Parliament will ratify the withdrawal agreement? Well, I mean, you know, there is there was overwhelming endorsement for that resolution. It, it, it is a resolution. It's the Parliament's view now on, on those particular issues. Well, Guy Verhofstadt um, and some others of the European Parliament Brexit negotiating team are to meet with the UK's Brexit people, so Stephen Barclay and others. Uh, I think it's next week they're supposed to go over to London and have a meeting with them. And this is what Billy Callagher was saying to me, that he wants to see what is going to be the outcome of those meetings in order to fully inform him on how he's going to vote at the end of the day. And I presume that will apply to all the other MEPs who have also expressed concerns. <clears throat> now, whether, sorry, I'm sorry, because I only came mm-hmm. back very late from Strasbourg last night. So, so I suppose the question, Michael, is will the, the negotiating teams who are, 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 are raising concerns about the citizens' rights, will those concerns that they have be fully dealt with so that when the vote comes on January the 29th, the MEPs won't have as much as many reservations as, as they have had. I don't know, mm. um, because as we know, the Johnson government isn't one to back down on issues. He has a majority of 80 or so now in the House of Commons, um, and he can be as bullish as he likes, I would have thought now that he has such a strong mandate. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, mm-hmm. I, 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 I wouldn't necessarily uh, place a lot of hope in the fact that they're going, the UK is going to radically change on this yeah. and, and give all the assurances that the Brexit negotiating team want on it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, is the European Parliament going to vote against the Brexit withdrawal agreement on January the 29th? I would find that an extraordinary move. Absolutely. I don't, mm. you know, I don't mm. think that's going to happen. And, and Kelleher himself was saying to me, look, you know, I am going to vote for it. So I suppose they're going to try and push as hard as they can to see can they get some greater transparency and assurances before the vote happens on the 29th okay. as planned as well, supposed to happen on g- the 29th. Given all that, Karen, it actually sounds optimistic to say that it's half time on Brexit. It may be just uh, kick off uh, as uh, the case may be. I have to leave it there though because our, our time has run out and many thanks uh, for your time. Karen Coleman, editor of Europarl Radio which reports on the European Parliament for Irish radio stations. Before we go today, perhaps uh, we can get one final comment from one of our listeners. Marie, uh, maybe you'd wrap it up with that. Rita listening this morning feels that all politicians are around now in Drogheda because of the elections when it's in the media they all seem to jump on the bandwagon but when the hype dies down the people are left to deal with the troubles on their own and this is not good enough. Okay I don't know how true all of that is but it is true to say the politicians are in Drogheda and that's where we leave you for today and this week. Hope you have a lovely weekend and God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM Good morning, bye bye 
The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.